Worldwide parent coach and conscious educator, Sue DeCaro, is on a mission to revitalize the joy in parenting. Welcome to Conscious Parents, Thriving Kids, a podcast designed to help parents all over the world create deeper connections with themselves and their children while overcoming life's daily parenting challenges. Listen in if you want to bring more laughter, love, and enjoyment to your home life. Welcome to Conscious Parents, Thriving Kids, a place for all things parenting. I am your host, Sue DeCaro. Today, I'm pleased to introduce my special guests, Cecilia and Jason Hilke. Cecilia and Jason have worked professionally with children and families for over 20 years. They've taught compassionate communication to parents and educators, work with children with special needs, and even taught together in the same preschool classroom. They founded Happily Family to help parents and teachers get support, education, and have fewer fights and more fun with their kids in their life. Their popular conferences, blogs, parent coaching, and classes touch the lives of tens of thousands of people each week. They live in Oregon with their two teen daughters and a gigantic cat. Welcome. So glad you guys are here today. It's great to be here, Sue. Thanks, Sue. Happy to be here. Great. Well, let's dive in. Many of my coaching clients come to me with questions about how to stop their kids from fighting. Sibling rivalry. We know that this type of rivalry is common or quote unquote normal and goes on in many families, especially with more than one child. It would be a fairy tale to expect our children living in one family under the same roof to be nice to each other at all times. This is what I like to call the storybook fantasy of raising children. But today let's talk about the reality of it and what it offers to us as parents in helping and teaching our children. And I know that you are both extremely knowledgeable on this subject, so let's jump in. All right. how, would you, how would you guys define rivalry? And what do you find are some of the main reasons that this rivalry even exists? Wow. Well, I that's a great question. And I'd like to start by sharing some of the research that we actually found out about uh, from Dr. Laura Markham, because in her book and in our conversations with her, what, what she talks about is um, some of the reasons why kids fight. It, there was like kind of the, the old school of thought around kids fighting that we need to stop it <clears throat> at all times. And uh, some of the old research in child development recommended to parents that um, if they didn't interfere in their kids fighting that they would fight less. And it turns out that is actually true. They do fight less if you don't interfere. Um, but the problem is, is that then kids, what's really happening is that kids are getting into kind of a pattern of powering over each other. And usually the less dominant child will just kind of give in and the more dominant child will get their way over and over and over again. Um, so then the, the new research came out so they're actually not learning skills. Yeah, they're not learning skills. They're not learning how to get along. They're not understanding each other's perspective or understanding their feelings or anything like that. Which is kind of our job as a parent yeah, is to help exactly. them build some right. skills. So, <laughs> right. So the, the new research came out and said, yes, uh, it's actually better for your kids if they are doing those fights that you come in and coach and do your emotion coaching and help them 
understand each other's perspectives and figure out something that's going to work for them. So, so yes, sibling rivalry happens. And if your kids are fighting, you could actually kind of consider that good news. These are great opportunities to jump in and help your kids understand more about each other. It's kind of like in the classroom uh, when we were teaching, whenever we would hear some kind of conflict starting and like just raised voices or something, we actually saw that as opportunity. Like that was actually something good because it was an opportunity for growth. I, I don't have that feeling. I, I tried to bring that back into family, but I'm more triggered with my own kids. So when there's, when, when voices get raised or, or something starts happening that's conflict related in the home, it doesn't have quite that kind of joy, but we had in the classroom, but, but I tried to bring with me the idea that in the classroom, what we saw is those conflicts were the opportunities for growth and for learning. And uh, that's one way we can start to look at sibling rivalry is it's opportunities. It's opportunities for these kids to build skills not just how to work with each other, but how to work things out in life and work out with other people. Yeah. So, so getting back to your question, Sue, if, if I were to define rivalry, I would define it something like um, they're, they're the fights and the disagreements and things that happen in order for a family to all figure out how to get along. Um, and I would... Uh, Rivalry. I, I I actually had to look it up because I'm like I'm terrible <laughs> at trying to come up with a definition of something without actually looking it up. And uh, I like Kindles for that reason. Even just reading a book, I can say what's that definition? And rivalry. It's you know it's about them looking at or wanting some kind of uh, the similar object or or they're vying for superiority in the same field. That's kind of like Webster's roughly Webster's definition of it. But that's what we see happening a lot in um, in families with siblings where they both want the same toy or they both want mom's or dad's attention, or they both, one of them wants to feel uh, like they're more accomplished than the other one. So there's a bit of a competition between them. So I think that's what I would see. That's how I would define or look at sibling rivalry. And it's, that just bleeds over all over the place. And I, I mean, our kids are teens and it still comes up. I mean, it does. Yeah. And they've just got skills where they can work those kinds of things out. Most of the time. And I, and I would say, and you can, you don't have to agree with me, Jason, but I would say like that definition, that kind of classic definition of rivalry, that's more of like an old school definition. And yet when in our own work and in our own family, we do see these fights and conflicts as opportunities for us to get to know each other. And, and there's, there's enough love to go around. There's no reason why we need to compete when we really get underneath it and understand like our feelings and needs and stuff like that, then it kind of makes the whole term rivalry almost like a moot point. I, I couldn't agree with you more, both of you. And I can remember years and years and years ago, not to give away my age, but my mother screaming, just stop it when we fought. And I was one of four. And so, you know, again, that old school way of just stop it, stop fighting, go to your separate corners, there was no teaching involved. And I love that you're highlighting that because I think when we look at the word rivalry, it doesn't have to have a negative connotation that our children are, you know, at each other and competing and looking for attention and trying to feel powerful. But like you said, the opportunity. So if we come to rivalry, and the word rivalry with a positive focus of it's a great time to teach our children how to navigate conflict, needs, uh, you know, stress, competition, you know, powerful 
focus and all of these other things that we've talked about, I think it's a beautiful gift in families to have it. Who wouldn't want it, right? Yeah. Right, right. And I think one of the underlying, we, you, you kind of touched on it right there, what you were saying. One of the underlying um, tools, foundations that we, that we looked to, to be in place, well, maybe two of them. One is relationship. Making sure that we have relationships that are already somewhat established, you know, like we feel connected to each other at a, maybe not in the moment, but like our kids have opportunities that they have experienced connection, not in the moment, but like they've had times when they've been able to play together and enjoy each other. And they've had like, they said, we set up little play dates for them ever since they've been young, just the two of them. And we also individually have worked on our connections with them so that when these hot topics come up, we have that foundation that we're building on. And the other piece is the other foundation that we build upon is communication and having a, uh, a needs-based communication. I think those are so important. So connection and communication before we can actually teach or help or be the coach to our children in resolving life's issues. Yeah. Yeah. That's fabulous. So in your own family, with your own two girls, maybe not recently, but what do you remember as being some of the challenges? Because of course we're painting this as a beautiful opportunity for parents to really connect uh, in this way by teaching our children such beautiful life skills that they'll use not only with their siblings, but when they step out into the world. What have you noticed to be some of the pitfalls in your own family and working with your two girls that have occurred? Or maybe you haven't noticed. <laughs> or maybe they haven't occurred, I guess is what I really mean to say, because, you know, it's a beautiful family. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I only well, wish. <laughs> well, some of our, our girls are now um, teenagers. They're uh, 14 and 15, and they're 18 months apart. And for the majority of their life, until very recently, they shared a bedroom. So um, in many ways, in a really small house, we used to joke that our old house was kind of like living on a boat because it was so small that we always knew where everybody was at any point in time. Um, and because of that, I think that it created more opportunities for um, growth and conflict. And it also um, created some closeness because we we're sharing in such a small space. Um, so I think our kids were probably just like any others that they had the classic uh, struggles over our attention, uh, over how they're going to share the space, what was going to be one child's space, what was going to be the other child's space. Um, even sometimes friendships or activities, uh, became like a little bit of a source for conflict because they were so close in age. There was some, at times some overlap between their, their friends and their activities. Um, and that could feel kind of threatening, I think, to either of them. And rather than us just going in and trying to solve the problem for them, what it was about was talking about those things, you know, and figuring out how are we going to work this out? You know, we, they were opportunities for working this out. And uh, I think one, as you were saying about space, I distinctly remember one of the stories uh, with uh, Alana when she, uh, we, they had bunk beds. And uh, at one point she just wanted her own space. And she started like kind of taking things up into her bunk bed. And so books into and the toys and yeah, all this. So the top bunk kind of became her space. And that was a space that uh, her younger sister was not, she didn't want her younger sister up there. So it, it was sacred space. It was like for her. Yeah. yeah. And so they started to, and you know, so we respected that we talked about it. Um, Sierra understood that. And 
you know, they, they started to, you know, find some spaces like, okay, this is mine. This is how I'm, you know, I'd like this to be my space or I'd like, this is something I'm working on. And so it was about negotiating. And those are, those are skills that, I mean, could agree if we get married and we end up sharing the same spaces and we have to work out those exact same issues, not necessarily that I'm going to take things into my bed, but I'm going to like, <laughs> you know, like get off my half the bed. Jason. <laughs> That's my but sacred like, you know, space. Closet space, for instance. You know, maybe it's something about a closet. Maybe it's just about how we have a bedroom. You know, whatever it is, those are all things that we negotiate as we get older. And uh, I remember at one at one point, Alana was so like concerned about having her space. This is before the the bunk bed incident. Before she figured out the bunk bed, she was carrying bags around. And she was our, like, our, we called her our little bag lady because she had put her toys and her things that she wanted that were, she had considered hers and she was carrying them around in bags. And so, it, you know, those were. Yeah, that was maybe like a three-year-old yeah, kind of strategy. Three, four-year-old. Three, four year she's not doing that anymore now. She, Thankfully, she's outgrown that. <laughs> now, now she's got the box <laughs> She still doesn't want us to touch her stuff, though. <laughs> but I think sacred spaces, I, you've hit on something so important because part of, I think, coaching our kids and supporting our kids and teaching our kids these skills is, is helping them to get what they need in terms of sacred space. We all need space. And if we grow up on a boat, like you described, uh, or even not on a boat, and we have, you know, lots of space we still can be in each other's, you know, quote unquote territory and not feel like we have privacy or space that is ours that we can put our, you know, our sacred books or special things and no one will touch them. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I'd love to share a story um, because we had to get really creative about creating space for each of our kids, especially for the oldest. She had that as more of a, a need than the younger one. So we often talked about, okay, where is that going to be? Are you, so are you going to go into the garage? Are you going to set up a tent in the yard? Are you going to like play in the bathtub? The bathtub <laughs> is your sacred space. Like, where is that going to go? And <clears throat> invariably she'd come up with an idea of where she was going to create some space. And one day she was like, okay, well, I'm going to use the tent in the yard. She was probably five years old at the time. She sets up the tent. She's got her books and her dolls and her uh, pillows and everything inside. And the very first thing she does is, Hey, Sierra, why don't you come in? Let's play together. Once she had that need met of like, I have this place that's just mine. I can control it. Of course, like she felt filled up and of course she wanted to share it with her sister. So it was, it was just a wonderful um, example to me that once it's not about forcing kids to share or forcing kids to play together. It's that once you help them and understand their emotions, help them kind of come up with a strategy that's, that's going to reasonably kind of work for everyone, then they will naturally extend themselves and reach out to their sibling or reach out to other people. Once they feel good about themselves, they'll naturally just want to connect with others. And one of the ways that showed up in the classroom was uh, we, each of the kids had cubbies, but this was not a traditional classroom. We had a very non-traditional classroom and uh, again, non-traditional school, <laughs> the, whole, the whole school was non-traditional. And uh, uh, so, you know, in, in this is a classroom of three, four and five-year-olds. And so these cubbies naturally are open and of course, you can imagine what would come up when someone would bring something that they would leave in their cubby and it looks really enticing. And maybe one of the other kids would go into that other kid's cubby and it just offered all kinds of opportunities for 
conversation and to talk about that. And those cubbies became, uh, in their own way, their own sacred space. We were, and they got to a point very quickly in the classroom where they recognized, like, this is my cubby, that's your cubby, and I'm not going to go into your cubby and take your stuff out. And that wasn't like a rule that we set down and said, this is the way it is. This was all about conversation. You know, as soon as that happened where someone had gone into one person's cubby and taken it out and the other kid got upset, it was like a great conversation to have in the classroom. And out of that came agreements about how they were going to uh, use that space. So it, this just, you know, this goes all over. This isn't just in a classroom or in a, in a home. You know, this is all over in our lives. So that was another strategy that yep. we used agreements, yes. like the kids coming up with what's going to work for them. What kind of a family do they want? What kind of a classroom do they want? How are we all going to get along? Yeah. Which the, is so empowering to bring our children into these discussions, not just direct, but include them and incorporate their ideas. It's yep. a, a lot less pressure and a lot less work too. <laughs> exactly. I'm all about it. <laughs> yeah. And I think there was hilarious. a, you asked for pitfalls. One of the other pitfalls that, uh, we see often is this topic about something being fair, about fairness. It's not fair. It's not fair. She got more ice cream than me. Oh my gosh, that still <laughs> happens. I wish that was like gone. I, thought, I just don't get it. Like, I'm like, come on, have we dealt with this? And they're still, you know, 14 and 15, like, it's not fair. I'm like, what, really? And uh, I think that that whole topic of fairness is a pitfall that as parents, it's it's a tough one. It can be a tough one to navigate. And, um, you know, one of the examples we give to our kids, I, I just used this the other day, actually, I was talking to our kids about how we, uh, just because one of our kids is sick and we may give her medicine, we're not going to give the other kid medicine also, right? Obviously. So in the same way, they're different kids. And so we're going to have different ways of working things out with them. And or, they're having, they're going to have different needs. They're going to have uh, different desires. And we're going to adapt to that based on who the child is and what's going on. So this topic of fairness, I think, really can catch us as parents uh, where we, we want to make things, everything equal, but that's not actually what we're wanting to do. We're wanting yeah. things to be fair. And fairness is about giving the kids what they need. Yeah, I, I like that. And because um, equity, as as much as that sounds good, and there are certainly families that that try to make everything equal, um, try to give even kids like the same uh, toy for Christmas, even though they're same d d different ages and have different interests. Or, or if one's having a birthday, the other one gets a gets a gift also. Yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot of a, can be a lot of attention on on being equal. And in our family, we really separated out equity and fairness saying, we're a fair family. Everybody gets what they need. Um, but it's not always going to be equal because you guys are different people and what you need is different. In every moment. Exactly. <laughs> every moment. I, I love the medicine. I mean, I wish I knew that when my kids were young, that, that medicine example is a great example. I believe my kids and many listeners may feel this way as well. We're, we're born with the words, it's not fair. <laughs> <laughs> Even though they weren't able to speak, I believe they had that thought inside that it just came out as soon as the words were, were available. Um, so it's a gr that's another opportunity to help our children see that they are unique individuals each and every day, every moment of every day, whereas they need different things, just like your medicine example. And that as conscious parents as you both are, we, and, and myself included here, that we try to reach that child or give that child what that child needs at each particular moment in time, 
based on who that child is and what you know what their needs particularly are so i think i think that's a really important topic and thought and i'm glad you mentioned that and it's tricky because mm -hmm. that requires empathy uh, on everyone's part, but in particular on the child's part, to be able to understand another perspective, to be able to put themselves in the shoes of another person uh, requires this skill of empathy. And so that is, that's something that can take some time and some work to actually develop um, with kids if uh, we're talking, especially if they're fired up, if they are, if they're triggered, um, then it's even more difficult. But if we bring empathy into the picture, then it's, it's easier to start to have this conversation about what is it that the other person needs. So that's one of the, you know, one of the underlying skills that we need to have in place in order to have these kinds of conversations. And it comes back to connection and communication. You know, connection yeah. and communication being the foundation before we can actually help in any of these other arenas. And, you know, I wanted to circle back because I think it's important, even though I said, you know, my kids came into the world thinking, you know, things weren't fair. Uh, they really obviously didn't. And I think it's an important topic uh, to touch on here is that our kids are not born with emotional intelligence and skills to really navigate and communicate their big and their small feelings. And these needs need to be communicated and navigated in some way that helps our children to be successful in their daily lives, out in the world, you know, in their own families. And so I think that's important for parents listening to think about is that these are the tools that we offer to our children after we develop the connection and the communication in our families to be able, able to open up the conversation to talk about conflict when it arises and to talk about the comments, it's not fair, and be able to bring compassion around that in terms of what that child is feeling, but also be able to offer some understanding as to what we just spoke about in terms of every person being their own unique self and spirit and needing different things at different times. Yeah, I think that's hugely important for our our long-term goal to be looking at how can we help our kids develop the social and emotional intelligence uh, that they're going to need for the, those moments um, in the in the short term, but also the moments in the long term. And um, as tempting as it is when kids are fighting to go in and try to do a quick fix and solve a problem, okay, well, you take this toy and you take that toy, or you play here and you play there, or to kind of squelch the conversation, to provide solutions. Um, it's much, uh, I've found it to be a much more interesting and fulfilling conversation and much more of a, a long-term fix to look at relationship and, and how we can develop, help the kids develop skills and to come in with the curiosity of, oh, I see there are two kids here and only one toy. And to help them, probably first with some emotional regulation of, oh, maybe I'm going to put my hands on the toy. Because if they're, if they're both fighting and like pulling it, then that's not going to help them. I'm just going to keep my hands right here until we can figure out how this is going to work out. And oh, you guys look so upset. I'm going to put one hand around one child. And I'm going to put another arm around another child. I've got two arms for two kids. I'm going to give you guys both little squeezes. 
how are we going to do this? What ideas do you have for how we're going to fix this? Um, and figuring out what's going to work for them. And that's beautiful because right from the start, you're asking them the questions. And I think this is something from a very, very young age that curiosity and questions can bring about such thoughtful answers from our children and ways to navigate through the sharing of a toy that we may never have thought of. Absolutely. Because we, we would take the toy, well, in the olden days, I'd take the toy away, hide it somewhere, and I'd never remember where it was. <laughs> <laughs> My kids would be like, you hid that toy. And that was when they were very young, and I did not have, you know, these skills that I uh, developed over the years. But I, I really think that's just a beautiful way to bring their ideas, their thoughts out and discuss them. Yeah. And sometimes you know, we either don't have the time to have that kind of conversation. Like we, oftentimes when we talk about it and we talk about this, people are like, that's great and all, but I don't have time for that. Like I, I got stuff I got to go doing, you know, in the classroom we could do it cause that's what we're doing. Right. But in, in the home, sometimes we're trying to get out the door or we're just trying to get dinner made or whatever. And so sometimes we don't have time to have those longer conversations. Now, there's, there's an argument for there being value and having the longer conversations when possible because it does build skills. It does allow for uh, hopefully solving the problems for the long term so you don't keep dealing with them. But the other thing they can look at is, you know, work it out as, as quickly or as easily as you can in the moment. Do what you need to do and then circle back around later and have a conversation outside the moment and talk about it. When everyone's, you know, when their prefrontal, pre, well, as uh, depending on the age they are, you know, however much of their prefrontal cortex is online, you know, their thinking part of their brain is there because oftentimes if we're really fired up and there are uh, a lot of big emotions, it's sometimes tough for them and even us to be thinking. So to come back around at another time when you're already connected and say, you know, that time when we were playing and you guys, you guys had that same toy and you both really wanted it. And I ended up just taking it and saying, you guys have to find something else to do or whatever happened. You know, what I'd like to do is I'd like to figure out what should we do next time mm -hmm. when you guys both want the same toy and you don't know how to work it out. What, what ideas do you guys have? You know, so you, you go in the same thing with the curiosity, you have the conversations, you work out, you know, some kind of a solution or an agreement, but you can do it. The, the opportunity is not lost if you don't do it in the moment there's still the ability to go back afterwards and have that same conversation. Yeah. And it may even be more, or you may do both. You may do it in the moment and circle back around, especially if it's recurring and saying, you know, I noticed every time that the Legos come out, everyone wants them. <laughs> and there's always this big argument that erupts out of it. I'm wondering what ideas do you guys have? So that you guys both love the Legos and I, I love that you play with them. And I think it's great. I like playing with them too. What do you guys want to do? Like, so that this can be worked out. And, and having that conversation. And that's, you know, that's all, there's a whole plan that you can come up with that. But the idea being you can circle back around and have these conversations outside the moment. Yeah. It's mm -hmm. never too late. We, we call those proactive conversations that um, <clears throat> happen outside the moment when people are calm and regulated and, and we, we love them because we think that, that they're very productive and you get a really good ROI, good return on your investment <laughs> because you, you're, you're, then looking at preventing a problem mm -hmm. from happening in the first place. And building so, skills. And also. building the relationship, building skills. Um, kids' brains are intact. Parents' brains are intact. You can go deep. Absolutely. 
I, I totally agree. And I, I really think that themes that are showing up are even more important, as you said, Jason, to, to come back to and back around to more than once sometimes. And I hear this as well, that, you know, there's just no time for long conversations. And I agree with you, you know, the investment is really important. And sometimes with clients and people I work with, you know, we talk about a car ride. And in the car is such a captivating time where our kids are there, no one can run away, you know, and we can actually have some really connected conversations about things that sometimes have been tricky and need attention. Yes. So taking advantage of those times, car rides or when we're putting our kids to sleep, sometimes they have the best ideas then too, can really (laughs) be a great opportunity to, to bring some attention to the positive ways that we can move forward in our families. And I, I still, I just wanted to share that uh, my kids are 21 and 25, and both girls, like you have, and they still come to me by phone with, you know, can you believe Sid did this, or my other daughter, can you believe Morgan did that, and start to pull me in, and, you know, it never works, and so, you know, it's just me reflecting back, well, what do you think you should do about that? and never jumping into it. So sometimes, even with our older children, they may still bring us in, even when they're not living under our roof. But because we're connected and have that open communication, sometimes they feel as if we can be a sounding board. Um, I think they'd like it to go a little further than that, like me take a side. But it doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't happen. You know, whether they're 5, 15, or 21 and 25, I think we can be there to support them on an ongoing basis, even if they have the skills, sometimes they just need honing in or a little refresher or bouncing something off to see how best to navigate forward. Sometimes yeah. just being heard is all, even as adults, I mean, we just sometimes we just want to be heard. And I think that's true for kids as well as adults that sometimes we just want someone else to get us and be, like you said, being having someone as a sounding board. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The old seen, heard, and valued. Yeah. Yes, yes. Yeah. And I think that's incredibly powerful. These, these um, tools that we're talking about here in this conversation, they, they don't go out of style, no matter what age your child is. Sometimes the, the content of the conversation changes or our language changes. Or sometimes it doesn't. <laughs> or sometimes it doesn't. <laughs> right. um, but, but ultimately, we're, we're about understanding our kids and, and, and the the example that you shared, Sue, I think is so great because um, whether your kids are uh, in their 20s, uh, in your case, or three years old, when we're saying, oh, well, what are you going to do? How do you feel about that? Uh, it sends them such a powerful message that, that you are a, a doer and you, are a, a, you can have an impact in your environment. You uh, make a difference. You have ideas. You have thoughts and you have feelings. And, and I think it, it's it really gives our kids a powerful message that they matter and um, that they can go and change something that if they don't like it or they have a voice. Or even just being able to work out the, the conflict. I mean, we saw at yeah. an early age, our kids being able to work out the conflicts themselves like pretty quickly. And I was surprised by that. Like, you know, we, we had no past experience as parents, you know, we were new to that. We, <laughs> granted, maybe we were on the fast track because we were also teaching. And so we had a little bit of an advantage that we were able to try stuff out and learn things in the classroom that were similar. But I still was surprised when I would see them like go and approach the other one and work out whatever the problem is or the conflict is. And I'm yeah. like, Oh, that's, 
that not only is that great for me because it doesn't involve me, but that says to them, like they have control of the situation as well. They have an impact. They're powerful and they have the ability to be able to actually work these things out without us on their own. So that's like a big skill that I would say translate into, into life. That's, those are the life skills that we're really trying to teach our kids in the midst of this sibling rivalry. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's beautiful. And it, it goes to kind of the all-encompassing umbrella of we believe in them. We know they are capable. And yeah. that message goes so strongly, I think, into their core when we consistently come back to that and, and navigate in that way, that we believe in them, we believe they're capable. And, you know, we're just there as, as ushers and support systems to help them through. And I, I think, you know, I want to circle back to just something that keeps jumping out at me, and that is the, the idea of expectation. And I think it's really important as we, you know, wrap up here that we remember that we can expect to have some sort of conflict or rivalry because it's natural, but how we come to it in terms of thinking of it as an opportunity as we started this conversation with and not looking at it as a negative, something to fear, something to, you know, quickly shut down and move away from can really make the world of difference in our home, with our children, with the connection, with with the focus and how we develop these skills with our children. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I'd like to think of uh, Dr. Harville Hendricks, who invented Imago therapy, he works with married couples. But what he says is that conflict is growth trying to happen. Mm. And that was such a beautiful way to kind of normalize um, conflict, whether you're talking about in a, in a marriage relationship or in a sibling relationship or just families in general, conflict is growth trying to happen. And you, what you said there reminded me about a meditation that I had I don't know, this is a while back. I was trying to remember the source of this. I should find it, but about suffering and that suffering is, and, and I, well, I feel like I'm suffering sometimes when our kids are fighting, I'm just suffering and I'm just frustrated and there's all this going on and suffering is being in something and thinking it should be different mm-hmm. rather than being in it and just accepting it for what it is. And uh, when I, when I accept that sibling rivalry is going to happen, the suffering, it's still not pleasant, but it's not the suffering that I was dealing with before. So um, I should get more clear on that exact quote. But. And it's that, that experience of kids fighting is not a sign that I'm doing anything wrong. Mm-hmm. It's not a sign that I'm a bad parent, bad mommy. It's not a sign that I've made mistakes. It's, it's a sign that there's an opportunity that, that kids can use to understand each other and go deeper and, um, and build the relationship. And it's not, we don't have to suffer. We can actually see it as opportunity. Yeah, right. Don't fear it. I, lo- I, I really like what you just said. Conflict is growth trying to happen. And I think if we look at that in respect to rivalry, we'll have a whole different percept- perception about it. And when we come to it with different eyes, we bring a, just a different attitude toward it. And I yeah. think that's really important. So thank you both for being on my podcast. And I know that you have a special gift for our listeners, and I would love for you to share what that is and how they can get it. Sure. Well, um, during this conversation, we briefly talked about helping kids calm down uh, if there is a conflict. Um, and one of the tools that we've used... We're helping the parents calm down. <laughs> that's that's true. Too. I use this still. Yeah. So one of the tools that we... Um, 
invented use in our classroom and in our, our home, we call the calming plan, which is a personalized plan that you can make with each member of your family of things that they want to be reminded of when people have flipped their lids, when everybody needs to take like a little break. Um, and it's got ideas in there. It's not just like, got ideas, here's something to fill out. A worksheet. I mean, there is something to fill out, but it's like got a great ideas, which is the thing that I usually lack. And so it's, I like to be able to look at this long list of ideas and pick out the things that help me calm down. And then our kids can also go through and figure out things that help them calm down. Yeah. So we'd love to give everyone who's listening here on the podcast, um, a, the free gift of, um, downloading your own calming plan that you can use, uh, in your family with your kids to help regulate some feelings. And you, if you want to go and download that, you can find it at www.happily. That's happily like happily ever happily after, ever after happily family.com forward slash thriving. And thanks for having us here. So we've really enjoyed this. It's been a joy having the conversation with you and talking about one of our favorite topics. Thank you. It's been an honor and pleasure and such a rich conversation as well. I appreciate you both being here. And thank you all for joining us today. Remember, each moment is a new moment for Conscious Connections. Thanks for listening to Conscious Parents, Thriving Kids. If you like what you heard, the best compliment you can give us is to share this podcast with a friend. And be sure to give us some stars and a favorable review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen in.